0: The Folly of Man and part two, and we're drawing upon Psalm 2 and verses 1 to 2, where we read, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. And so it proceeds from there. And we see in this the war that man is waging against God. That came up in Revelation chapter 19 as well. God's war or man's war against God which we account folly. There is only one outcome, only one winner in this and it is God. God who has set his king on his holy hill of Zion. King of kings, the Lord of lords in Revelation 19 tells us the end of the story that there is no competition. There is only one outcome and the outcome is assured. Assured today as we're here and surveying world events as we've been surveying them. You never know quite what stage world events will reach when you prepare a sermon and look ahead. But uh, the Bible is really in the end the best commentary on what's happening out there, what's happening in our own country at the moment. Look at the Bible is the best reader of the human heart, because, of course, behind it lies God in all his wisdom. Nobody understands the human heart better than he. No, he's not tainted by sin. Those are purer eyes, pure eyes than to behold sin. Yet he understands the sinful heart when he pronounced death upon our first parents for their disobedience, a death that they, somehow didn't believe would, would apply to them, wouldn't really touch them. God knew what it would entail because he knew that it would be the opposite of all that he is, the opposite of his character, and that it would produce in our first parents, and indeed all of those that they represented, all of us, that it would lead to an opposition against himself, that that would be the inevitable result, that if he is to withdraw his grace, withdraw his help, then the seed of enmity would be what would be birthed in their hearts and so it is to this day and whatever or makes of what's in the media efforts to try to understand president putin we've read some pretty weird stuff this last week there that uh, he might be mad he might be suffering long covid he might be dying of cancer and has a entourage of doctors following him the strangest one here and make of this what you will but he bathes in Antler's Blood. So if you read that one, well, there's one there to conjure with. But beyond it and uh, over that, beyond all these things, well, it's sin's legacy somewhere working there. And we'll come to a little bit more of that in a moment. But let's just dwell again on that main subject. Man is at war with God, our first heading. Man is at war with God because men are sinners and sin is lawlessness. It is a casting off, isn't it, there? Of course, it is a breaking of bonds in pieces. That was Satan's rebellion, wasn't it? That's what he offered, really, to our first parents, the thought that you don't need to be held by God. You really can have your independence and freedom. It will work out fine. So put those bonds away from you, Cast away those cords, freedom beckons, where you will come to full age and maturity, when you won't have to live in a kind of state of child-parent relationship. You can be your own people. Well, that in itself, to believe that was lawlessness. And the result of that, to inherit the curse, to have God's help in the human heart, Removed, to be given over now to what it means to be independent, to be lawless. Well, it's not an attractive proposition at all. First John chapter 3, there in verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You want a definition, sin, it is lawlessness. And if you want to see what it looks like, you go to Psalm 2 and there's breaking their bonds in pieces, and casting their cords away from us. We won't have God's law, but we'll have our own. Well, that's lawlessness, and it is sin, and the results of it are very, very unappealing. Romans 8 tells us, this is the human heart, verses 6 to 8, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, But it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God it's carnal mind the psalm 2 mind the first John chapter 3 verse 4 mind it's lawless it is not submitted to the law of God indeed it cannot be it is unable to be it has an inbuilt hostility to it rebellion to it which may be masked restrained in a way by some degree of Christianizing of society, good parenting, good schooling, good examples set in youth, these sorts of things put a restraint on it, but it can't cure it. It is incurable on its own. And so that's where we rely, don't we, upon the grace of God. But the individual left to his, her own devices will not come up with the right answers, will come up with rebellion Rebellion against God in a milder or in a more excessive form. And then when you gross that up to nations and sort of national cultures, mindsets that prevail, or at least uh, prevail sufficiently to be what uh, dictates policy, government policy and the rest of it. Well, it's more of the same, just sort of brought into a bigger sphere, might be moderated somewhat there to take account, maybe, of the church, take account, maybe of the Christian voice, to embed something of that, embrace something of that. That's that's a bit of a check on what governments might do or what might be put into law. Those checks are pretty missing these days in our own nation, aren't they? But there is man, he'll be his own ruler, he'll be his own lawmaker, and he'll be the interpreter of his own laws. He he will break his own laws if he feels uh, the need to do it and uh, justify it. Uh, He will make it up as he goes along. There you have what's called situational ethics that, uh, you know, the sort of philosophy very much in vogue in the sixties. Liberal church took it in that you don't have hard and fast rules. You, you make it up as you go along. Whatever the situation requires, you let your ethics, uh, fit into that. And if your culture is going down and away from Christian culture, well, then catch up with that and adjust. You be God. That's what it's saying, isn't it? You be God. You play God. And what can possibly go wrong. Well, everything goes wrong. In fact, in the Mark chapter 7, well, let's see what comes out of the human heart. Well, it's a very unedifying uh, sight. Mark 7, verses 20 to 23, the Lord said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, Lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Foolishness is there, the folly of man. That's part of the whole story, as are all those other things which are listed there. Murder, pride, and all the rest of it. And it surely wasn't the intention of Adam and Eve to have all of those things. They wouldn't have... Uh, I said, oh, yes, let's, let's do that. Let's uh, have evil thoughts. Let's have adulteries, fornication, murders, and thefts. They wouldn't have thought that. But that's really what they were risking. Somehow they would have known that there was a danger of that, that death, spiritual death followed by physical death, would have those things attached. But they thought they knew better. They thought the serpent knew better and that there was wisdom. But instead, they ended up with all the things which they probably never believed that they could be or could become, or that without God's help, that that's what they would be on their own. Yet it was, and it didn't take long for their own family, in fact, to see murder take place within and to have the sadness of that to have to carry through all their days. So that is the war that's happening. And the war goes on, doesn't it, in various ways, whether between individuals or groups or between nations or at least parts of nations. And people are at war with their neighbor, aren't they? They're at war with their neighbor. That's what a lot of this stuff is going to produce. There's going to be war with your neighbor. And all of these things here are going to generate upset. People have plans. Other people get in the way of those plans. And then there's trouble. Uh, then there are arguments, and then there is jealousy, and then there is anger, and there is hatred. People, we all of us, get in the way of other people's plans, frustrate their hopes and their ambitions, and they frustrate ours. And at a worse then, it generates arguments, grievances, which just last and last. Of course, some nations, they last hundreds of years. They go back, and they go back, and they go back, and they fester, and they're still there waiting to be Activated Islam's hatred of the Jews. Say that. It's hatred of the Jews there in the book. And it's, it's evidenced in the behavior of many Muslims in the world that they just have an inveterate hatred of the Jews. I don't think much of Christians either when it comes down to it. The ugliness of that is played out in world affairs, world events, wherever you might go. And what a wretched, wretched legacy that that has left of anti-Semitism through the world war with neighbors neighbors who are thought to whether individually or as a group of people or or as nations representing groups of people to be a problem and needing to be solved what of course happens in individuals the ordinary person the man the woman in in, on the street Well rulers aren't exempt from this when you assume political power when you become a president Prime Minister, whatever a title you have. Somehow it doesn't all get left behind at the door. When you, whatever oaths, whatever promises people engage in when they take high office, whatever uh, ways in which they promise to uphold their constitution or whatever it is they uphold, they haven't changed. They haven't become overnight people that now Uh, They're honest and upright. Now all the vestiges of old self-interest are left behind. Or that their membership of whatever particular group or other that they come from, tribe or ethnic group or language group, that they've left behind hostilities and grievances and ugly historical uh, grievances stretching back perhaps over centuries. They bring it all, sadly, with them. Well, a lot of them do. Some rulers there have excelled in being even-handed and just and upright and blameless in that way, and they've commanded our respect, but others not so much. Of course, for many of those people, we have to say that the thought of power, the thought of being able to exercise it, to have the levers of power, has been far too attractive a proposition and has been one in and of itself that has shown a, a love of things, a covetousness there, a, a hold to be able to have and to be able to run things and tell people what to do and implement a system of, of thought, an ideology, a philosophy. And that hasn't always been with great benefits to those societies. Because often, again, those people are having a strong desire for power, but a capability of getting that power, of being able to, say the right things in the right way to the right people, be able to manipulate public opinion, to have an understanding of what people want, to be able to give it to them, knowing what their sinful desires are, and giving them the red meat there for promises. So we'll guarantee they'll vote for you with that. Goodie bags to be dispensed with. And powers of communication sometimes, unrivaled. I oh, how they can work a crowd like nobody else and gain a, A following and uh, by all the dark arts be able to do it propaganda that goes out well we've heard of these things we know them and sadly they're happening to this this very day political leadership those who lead us can be very very disappointing and uh whichever political party in our own country one cares to look at then one doesn't just sort of pick on one party and Leave another there without uh, making comment, but uh, one can make any number of comments there about all our political parties and their actions and their hypocrisies and their double standards and all the ways in which they sell the truth short. And it is very sad. Man is at war with God. That means he's at war with his neighbor. And indeed, within the heart of man, he's at war with himself, doesn't even know himself and fights against at times his own best Interest. My second heading: The war has different expressions. Like right? the war against God, what we read in Psalm two, what's happening in Revelation nineteen, has different expressions. Well, first of all, most obviously, most overtly, there are the attacks on the church herself. The way in which people attack the church. Well, true church we're talking about here, not the false church. The false church is part of the the attack force against the true church. False church is no time for the true church. But Paul warned the elders uh, who had traveled from Ephesus to Miletus and told them what was upcoming. Acts 20 verses 29 and 30. I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples' After themselves. And he goes on there for watch. And remember that for three years, I do not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. It was serious. The so night and day with tears. This is going to happen. It's a horrible thing. I feel for you. Paul is saying, but it's going to happen. And he'd be looking at people. He'd be nodding and agreeing and smiling. And oh, right. But it would be the very people actually from among yourselves who, who would come speaking perverse things, drawing away the disciples after them. So within the church, people would arise teaching false things, false doctrines, false experiences, whatever it might be. But then, of course, the more savage wolves, real, overt persecution. and Sometimes those people at the forefront of it are very religious people, very religious people. Some of them are actually people that once owned the name of Christian. They don't behave like it now and turn back on it with a viciousness and an ugliness that... uh, generates a lot, a lot of violence against it. So, uh, well, just a few examples we could supply our own, I'm sure, but Acts 14, some of the persecution that uh, Paul as a representative there of Christ faced and uh, verses four to seven, what happened in Iconium, the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra, and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, like and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. Violence against them. Well, Lystra didn't uh, give any let up to it. There, that uh, there again, there was more uh, violence following verses nineteen and twenty in Acts fourteen. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there to Lystra, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stone Paul dragged him out of the city supposing him to be dead however when the disciples gathered around him he rose up and went into the city and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe there savage wolves there but they didn't have the last word they never will the word of God will be unchained it will succeed and those who attempted to destroy it will fail but it won't stop them being pretty violent I'm pretty overt in that violence, whether within the church, standing in pulpits with an open Bible, but teaching rank heresy uh, or not just dis- dispensing with the, the niceties and the politenesses, not having the Bible, but throwing the Bible away and uh, teaching uh, that the Christian faith is a great danger and that those who teach it must be arrested, must be killed indeed in some cultures. Avert. A hatred of God, isn't it? They're like fighting against him, fighting against his army, the church. Or another expression of it, fighting against his revealed order, God's order. And that's the same way of tearing their bonds from us, breaking their bonds, casting their cords away from us. Well, there are various ways in which this happens. Well, we believe conception is the beginning of life. Conception in the womb is the beginning of life. Not not at some later arbitrary point or when the baby is brought into the world. But right there, right at the beginning. That's the only place you can really assert life begins. The only logical place. Oh no, So efforts are made to get abortion in. <laughs> to be able to play it on right side here. To give a free pass to those who want to. Have an abortion. Encourage others to have an abortion. No, no, no don't worry. That, that wasn't life that was being destroyed. There, that was the what they call it—the products of conception. I think is the the kind of mealy mouthed expression, the kind of science sounding thing, which kind of distances the child in the womb from being a human being uh, and gives it a title, which makes it all the easier to dispose of. Well, that's actually fighting against. God's revealed order. God has said, known in the womb, on the Baptist there in the womb, the baby leapt for joy when hearing the voice of Mary, who was to give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or that there are two sexes, male and female. Well, I'm not going to attempt a biology lesson here for you, good people, this morning. But uh, I'm not saying this on my own authority or because I'm some biologist, but because it's in the Word of God. Male and female made he, they, them. That's how he, he made us friends, male and female. Well, you wouldn't know it, would you? If you um, asked politicians today to try to give an answer to that, you hear all kinds of things coming out. All kinds of amazing answers there. Oh, it's cool. That's a rabbit hole. I will not go down there. Oh, dear, wait a minute. That's a tricky question. That's meant to try to get me all kinds of tangles. Or... Well, it's a legal issue, lots of legal definitions, very complicated, you know. Well, very complicated indeed, it is isn't. the mouths of some politicians, by the time they've finished with it, we're left wondering there just what we are. And that's deliberate obfuscation, isn't it? It's a fight against God's revealed order. This is, this is how he created us, friends, male and female. But when people try to break all that up and uh, break up the bonds here and the cords that we're we're held by, well, restrictive courts, these are for our good. But that's all being dispensed with. or marriage. Marriage, well, we're looking forward to Dan and Ailey's marriage this coming Friday. But marriage, well, how that has been redefined. So we're going to be reading Genesis 2 on Friday. Well, that's a spoiler for you all. But anyway, that, that's it. One flesh. Man will leave his father and mother, join to his wife, and there should be one flesh. Well, we heard it there, didn't we? Man and woman again, male and female, that which is in creation. But I know marriage is rewritten. The great war against God continues there. But then restless ambition, restless ambition of man. You feel that in Psalm too, don't you? That these kings, these rulers have got other ideas and God is not in them. God has already got his... His authority established. There, There is his son. There he is. King of kings. The lord of lords. We're wise to be on his side, aligning with him. But I know they're setting themselves actually against him. They don't always know it, but they are. They are taking counsel against him. And all of their plots and alliances and confederacies and different nations looking to that nation. Perhaps you can give us some weapons there or give us some support there or Get us a resolution in the United Nations here. Restless ambition. What are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to build heaven on earth. That's what they're trying to do. Or a portion of heaven. Our nation will be a heaven on earth. We will be able, by our actions here, to secure for our nation, group of nations, such an advantage that we'll be building a utopia, some ideal society that we're moving towards it and these policies and these actions we're taking now are going to get us there well the hubris of Nebuchadnezzar who surveyed Babylon this is not mighty Babylon that I have built and the judgment came upon him no reference to God in that Nebuchadnezzar you haven't factored him in and he had to learn a hard lesson on the back of that Babel The building of that tower, all the great ambitions that were surrounding that, centred upon that work there in ancient times. So in Genesis and in chapter 11, verses uh, 6 there and following, the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, they may not understand one another's speech. Of course, we know the Lord then scattered the peoples with their different languages across the face of the earth. The ambition, building something great there, building something big. They said to themselves, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They're brick for stone. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Gonna build utopia. Gonna build our ideal. Gonna exercise our full potential. Here we will be those who rival heaven. It was there, wasn't it? Come, let's do this. It's where God says, "Come, let us scatter you, let us bring." Actually, the thing that you fear in your hearts—that you're fighting against me—and you'll learn that to your cost, to your peril. But that restless ambition is there at Babel, friends. I fear it's still there today. That's national ambitions to build a utopia in a nation or a group of nations or an idea. That's what communism was going to bring, wasn't it? Going to bring utopia. That's the dream, the ideal that if you followed this set of prescriptions, this set of ideas, you would have heaven on earth. You would build something that would last and which would be so, so good. And in the process, of course, to make these utopias, people get in the way of them. People are in the way. They don't get it. And so often those utopias then turn a little dystopian because the people that get in the way have to be removed. Well, for their own good and for the good of the greater project, ethnic cleansing has to happen and people have to be put to death who who oppose or re-educate, send away places to get with it. To see the utopia, to understand it now. And if they weren't, then for their own good and for the good of the wider thing, they have to be kept away, removed, cancelled, their voices not heard. So it's led to the dehumanising of people. We saw that with the Jews, didn't we, under the Nazi rule? Well, we see it in various ways. Islam does it, doesn't it, there, and it's calling Kafir which is a derogatory term, infidels who don't share the sunlit uplands of Islamic thought. And, well, do we not see it there, the Ukrainians being classified as as Nazis, a fair portion of them by the Russians? There are some difficulties in Ukraine with those issues, and that one has to concede. But still, justify the actions that are happening at the moment, that you're cleansing the area of Nazi thought is, I fear, taking a little bit too far there. Dehumanising people, the better to drop bombs on women and children, hospitals and schools. And the dangers of nationalism, or perhaps the dangers there of a particular view of nationhood or collective of, of nations. The time and the place to try to develop the distinction between patriotism and a nationalism. But if nationalism has that, our nation, right or wrong about it, perhaps patriotism can have a love for nation, but concede a few points that the nation hasn't got everything right. Maybe we're onto something with that. But I read Acts 17 last week, Paul in Athens, verses 26 and 27, where Paul giving an object lesson to the pagan people, really what it's all about. And he said he, he, God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Of course, one blood should uh, really begin to ring in our ears there, whatever the nations are, whatever their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, one blood. What was it for? We saw this last week, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. That nations, belonging to nations, is part of common grace. It's a providence. And it's not meant to make us nationalistic, and our nation right whatever it does, but to make us seek God and to appreciate the order of nationhood, of government, rule, of civil society, of all of these things, that we might appreciate God. And seek him that's not sufficient it's not uh, supernatural revelation any more than in creation believe in creation still not be saved from one sin one can believe perhaps that uh, there's good to be found in nationhood in the order that it gives and still not be a Christian and we have to be sober as I've hinted at our history and well that's what we are being encouraged to do in, uh, in our own culture back on the blight of colonialism, the downsides of imperialism. Yes, yes, we see it, we deplore it, the things that were done. But we cannot also forget within it, intertwined with our national history, great advances in humanitarianism, great advances in science, great advances in philosophy, in culture of a better sort, great advances, of course, in Christianity. The Christianity that reached those nations that were under the empire and which through that we'd have to say brought them good. What a mixture, what a mess and we should not uh, readily there dismiss all the negative side of it and be nationalistic in that way. Oh sure we will see the things that were good and sure we'll acknowledge the things that were bad. I will acknowledge the nations are often very artificial things the boundaries that have been drawn very clumsy drawn by others and without any thought to the the ethnicity or the language of a particular group but kind of grouping together particular people there or in conquests of other nations communism whatever it is brought upon it there an effort to hold everybody together under a communist ideal and of course when The the Iron Curtain fell, the Berlin Wall fell. Then some of these tensions, difficulties, the artificiality of what had been imposed began then to express itself. But we would see that quite a few nations, therefore, very uneasy, very awkward combinations of people whose languages don't belong together, whose background, culture is not the same not homogenous and who feel those tensions and yet the sadness is isn't it that within nations that they've not learnt to be able to adopt what really in the end is is the is the christian perspective made of one blood and therefore when we're one in christ or read some texts and read it to that end all those differences melt away as a being of little relevance, language differences, ethnic differences, differences of culture, differences of custom melt away before something greater. I think nations have not always risen to that kind of challenge. That would be a Christian nation if it could offer that and could take with it Christian ethics and, and, and model those to a watching world, that it could take what is good thought derived from the Bible and offer that as an example to the world. Too often, the ambition has only been trade, generating a wealth, business, holidays, traveling, not looking to enrich the world with Christian thoughts and Christian values and Christian ethics, but with something far more worthless, something far less substantial, rising standards of living, consumerism rather than modelling Christian ethics, wanting to take something derived from scripture, spiritual, to those nations. Why, it was said uh, a while back uh, that uh, we we're going to be ambassadors in the world for gay marriage. That was That's what we're proud of. David Cameron's proudest achievement was to bring in gay marriage. And Theresa May, she was the Prime Minister, that was going to have us known, ambassadors of gay marriage in the world. Not ambassadors of Christ, not representing him, not calling upon the nations to repent in all humility but that. So internal disputes, identity questions, where we began. Where We began with Adam and Eve. That's where we began. We began with the fall there. Unfortunately, we've inherited that. But now in the church at her best, we have to say that at her best, this has not always happened. But it's Galatians 3, verses 25 to 29, the undoing of of all all of that folly. There we are. After faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, for you're all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as of you were baptized into Christ and put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one. In Christ Jesus, and if you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's like thou saying you've become ungentile or undue that you just sort of dismiss your background or slave, well, I'm no longer a slave. Well in some senses you still are, but not in the sense that now is so so important male and female. Not obliterated what male and female means, but it's saying whatever it means. Is irrelevant compared to the fact you're one in Christ, that you belong to him. Your identity now is, I'm not a man or I'm a woman or something like that, but I'm a Christian. That's my identity. I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile, or whatever, but I'm a Christian. That's the identity that counts. That's the one nation. That's bringing back from the one blood. And now when nations have failed to be able to model that kind of unity and bringing difference together and subsuming it under something much, much greater. You've never had anything greater. Trade, consumerism, business, holidays, and that was as far as it went. I caricature it, I generalize, I admit, but that's often not amounted to much more than that. Colossians chapter 3, a similar thought, verses 9 to 11, where we read, uh, Do not lie to one another, since you put off the old man with his deeds, and I put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all. And in all the old identities, all the old ways that you'd have identified yourself, I'm a Scythian. That's not many who said, I'm a barbarian. But um, the the pejorative that's come with that is, is a bit more evident now than perhaps it was then. But that identity doesn't matter. Maybe, Maybe real in one sense. But being one in Christ is the identity that counts. And in that, we have more than enough. We have everything we need. We don't need a national ambition. We don't need a utopia here on earth. We don't need to be able to to export that out into the world. We have no ideology that requires the death of these people, ethnic cleansing here. We have modest aims, modest ambitions. In Christ, the other. Takes preeminence over the self. Other people, their needs, their wishes, their ethnicities, their backgrounds, their histories take precedence. Because what does it matter now when we have Christ, when we have citizenship in heaven? My final heading, God's perspective. That's the one we're to have. And that's where it's moving towards. Man's folly destroys it. Man's folly at whatever level, individually, nationally, within groups, within tribes, within cultures, destroys it, it's brought back together again in Christ. That's why at the end, he's going to bring all things together in himself, the whole cosmos, this world, new heavens, new earth. What once were these boundaries? Well, he's then going to have it as his own. That's his inheritance. The nations are his. He's got the ends of the earth for his possession. And he's going to deal, isn't he, very strongly with those who are at war with him however they expressed the war whatever they were doing in their war against him he's going to deal with them it's there in revelation 19 it's there actually in psalm 2 after all it's the same book it's the same god the old testament and the new testament just are part of the same book part of the same god dealing in the same way here with those who oppose him Our lord told us and You know, in this present climate and World War III, nuclear wars and all such things being talked about there. Well, we've been there. We've been here before. And perhaps we'll all have to wearily be here again, sadly, in days ahead. But our Lord's words are always worth repeating. Matthew 24, verses 6 to 8. And you will hear of wars, rumours of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Well, These are the beginning of sorrows, not the end of it. Not a sure sign that everything's going to end tomorrow. It may do, but it may not. And whatever it is, don't panic. Don't be troubled. Whatever happens, well, friends, if we know the Lord, we're going to glory, aren't we? And it will show the futility of man's ambition, the end of... Babel, we'll see our Lord prevailing, as we read there in Revelation chapter 19. And we could read it elsewhere in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. Just turn there for another kind of look on this. Then the seventh angel sounded. And there are loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. They are at war, weren't they, before? Kingdom against kingdom, now not. They are of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, and who was, and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, there's the war against God, and your wrath has come. And that's all in Psalm 2 as well, isn't it? In the time of the dead, so they shall be judged. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Solemn, kiss the sun, lest he be angry with you, and you be destroyed on the way, in your way, on your journey. The journey to hell, friends, is a journey to condemnation. Don't be on the wrong side of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords when he comes. Cause may at times look sad, pitifully sad, small, struggling, but it's real. And there's the truth. And if we're found at war with that truth, beware. Serve the Lord with rejoicing and trembling. Come before him, kiss him, repent, make your peace with him. It's the only side to be on. And in the meantime, don't rush to judgment. Keep calm. Do not be troubled. We have to regulate our feelings. The stories we hear are heartbreaking the stories reported to us by our friends in other countries or in churches in Ukraine. They've broken their hearts. They've just been bogged down, wearied. So many sad, distressing stories. Yes, but we regulate our feelings and we try to keep perspective, God's perspective. See that there is a judgment for those who perpetrate wickedness, commit war crimes on whichever side. We look to help where we can. We pray. Yes, we study human nature. We need to be experts in human nature, including our own hearts. We search there, find what ambitions lurk there. And we've got to be ruthless with them. We approach ourselves with an open Bible. But we keep the end in view. Heaven. Friends, this world is not our home. It's not our home. There is not going to be a utopia here on earth. That's heaven. That comes when the King of Kings comes, brings then joy, truly inexpressible, expressible world of glory. We have a foretaste of it now in the prospect. We think of it. We are looking forward to it. We're looking forward the more we see this sad world. It cannot sustain or support our hopes, our longings, our joys. Only heaven can. And as we look on the folly of man, we'll let that folly not be ours. Let us be spiritual people, Christ-centered people, God-centered people, Bible-centered people. But that's the only place to be. And as this world tosses forward, as we stumble from one crisis to the next, its wisdom will only become more apparent with each passing day. Let's be found on the Lord's side. Let's be found serving the King of Kings. Amen.